Hi, I'm Tammy Hicks-Jackson. Welcome to my podcast. I am a Christian pastor in the United Methodist tradition, and this podcast covers a variety of topics. You may find anything from Bible study and devotions to yoga and meditation from a Christian perspective to my thoughts on Christian leadership and the church. Look for the descriptions and the tags for each episode to find what you're interested in. And thanks for taking this journey with me. Let's jump into this episode. I cut the other podcast off uh, a little bit abruptly because I noticed that I still had several pages of notes and I was approaching an hour, which is an exceedingly long podcast. I, I will say that I warned you at the beginning, and I hope you were able to turn it off and turn it back on whenever you were able to continue with the study. I find that it's helpful sometimes not to spend too much time in this because it gets overwhelming. So I want to talk about resurrection, particularly here in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 12. Some feel that this resurrection is resurrection for the nation of Israel. Israel was reestablished in 1945. So for them, they see the fulfillment of this prophecy happening right there. Others see a fully developed resurrection theology in Hebrew thought. This does appear, notice, to be a resurrection of a physical body rather than a nation when I, when I read it. But apocalyptic symbolism can be hard to decipher. The faithful dead go into God's good other world as whole persons. Whatever had happened to them, whatever had been done to their bodies, um, however long they had been dead, they go into this good other world as whole persons. The Bible does not, in fact, teach this idea of disembodied spirits as being God's um, ultimate kingdom. So when we think of heaven and like our spirit is like this little Casper ghost or some white light that leaves us and we all float in the in the celestial ooze with God, the Bible never presents that picture of afterlife and heaven. Heaven is Eden. It is a return to Eden. The story in Revelation is the world as it was supposed to have been, as it was in the beginning with a body. Now, what may happen is our soul, who we are, while it doesn't have a body, is in another place waiting for that to come. And that may be uh, around the celestial council that, hall that we see talked about where like they gathered to talk about Job. And in Revelation, we're going to see the witnesses approaching God. How long? How long? Um, Jesus refers to today you will be with me in paradise. And there are people who think that's a that's just the place where the righteous dead wait um, for all of this to come about. We're not given a lot of details about it. And I think it's because we're not supposed to exert a lot of energy and time on trying to figure it out. From Genesis to Revelation, what we see is God building a place to live with his people on a physical plane, not an ethereal one. Um, the spirit as better than flesh comes to us from dualism, especially from a heresy that we call Gnosticism. So this idea that we will shed these horrible, sinful, earthly bodies and the, the part of us truly made in God's image will be set free from it and will go to heaven and be in that perfect state with Him as a spirit, that somehow the flesh is bad. Um, God created the world in Genesis and called it good. Um, Adam saw Eve and called it good. Um, God came in human 
flesh to us and was perfect. So um, maybe we should not draw that kind of difference. So this idea in Gnosticism was that there was a radical distinction between the body and the spirit. It led to the idea that Jesus wasn't truly human, that he just appeared to be human, and they had the idea that they had to escape the physical body so that the spirit could be fully realized. This led to two excesses, one in either direction. The first excess was very aesthetic practices, such as flagellation, which was beating yourself. You may have seen in a movie about old times where they have the the whip and they're throwing it over their shoulder, whipping themselves on the back. That's flagellation. Um, Mortification of the physical body so that your soul can prosper. There. Um, By the way, when we fast, when we engage in spiritual disciplines, we're doing so so that we don't have to expend the energy. We're not distracted by that. It is not because being hungry makes us more spiritual. It's not because experiencing pleasure makes something wrong. It's not. Um, it's because we, we remove the distractions. This is an actual idea that punishing the body helps you be more spiritual. This excess also rejected all bodily pleasures, including sex, alcohol, food, comfortable clothing, laughter, friendship, anything that brings you pleasure in your human body, um, it should be shunned because it will inhibit you being spiritual. When the pendulum swings to the other side, it leads to people saying that the body doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is the spirit. And so we hear Paul talking about this with the early believers in his letters, like, No, it's not just your spirit. Like what you're doing with your body matters. You can't be engaging in these licentious practices and think that's okay. Like you are, you are one being (laughs) and what you do with your body matters. So for those who felt that the body had no connection to the spirit, except that the spirit is currently trapped in the body, they felt like um, embracing passions. Your passions could be allowed to run wild and it would have no implication on your relationship to God and your spiritual maturity. Both of these excesses are still present in the church today, in Christianity. One is known as liberalism, I mean as legalism, that God doesn't want you to have any fun, that God doesn't want you to enjoy life, that in order to be spiritual, you have to reject all worldly pleasures or up to a certain extent. You have to be like there are lines that you can't cross because it inhibits you. The other excess is libertinism, um, that what we do through the week or outside of church doesn't matter, Um, that you can pray or attend a Bible study or be in worship. And right before or right after, you could have been engaging in incompatible practices um, that are condemned in Scripture. But all the way through Scripture, we have... The fact that what we say we believe gets backed up with what we do. You cannot separate your physical body from your spiritual existence. They have an impact on each other. Okay, so there are also people who see two resurrections in the Bible. One for the saved and one for the damned. Damnation 
is the eternal contempt that we found in verse 3 of chapter 12 of Daniel. Um, The idea here is that you suffer in hell forever, that that's damnation. Others believe that unbelievers will be physically resurrected to stand judgment, and then they will experience the second death, which is destruction again, and that is permanent. Um, Check Revelation 20, um, 5 and 6 for that. If you're looking to me to give you a definitive answer on this, I'm not going to because I I don't understand everything about this. And there's a lot that's not said. There's a lot of conclusions and ideas that we have arrived at only by filling in the gaps. Some of those conclusions incorporate more scripture in order to try to come to a conclusion. So they've done better work to try to figure it out. Um, But I still don't think there's enough evidence given to us to figure it out that this is one of the things that we have to trust. We have to trust God about. Okay, so the conclusion of the book of Daniel comes in chapter 12, verses 4 through 13. Daniel has finished telling us all the stories he wants to tell us. He's finished with all four of the visions that he he needed to keep and collect and keep for a while. And now we're going to see why he's done that. And he's going to give us a wrap-up. In verse 4, he's told to shut up the book. Um, This implies that he isn't to publish it. This is not for public knowledge at this time. He's to keep it safe but not widely known, at least now. He's to shut up the words and seal the book. So that repetition means really, 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 I'm serious, don't share it. He says that there will be many running back and forth, And evil or knowledge will increase. Depending upon which translation you have, it says for evil will increase or for knowledge will increase. Um, If you want to try to reconcile those two choices, searching for knowledge, um, it's certainly not, the running is certainly not any reference to rapid transportation. Um, It is about knowledge. And is this knowledge good or is it evil? They're searching for knowledge and understanding. They're trying to figure out events. They're trying to figure out what's coming and of what they should do. And they may be running back and forth trying to figure it all out. They're in a frenzy. They're staying all worked up trying to figure out. You may know, as I do, some people who are so obsessed with figuring out the end times that they can't do anything else. Like they're not doing any other good in the world. They're not engaged in any other ministry in the church. It's just this all the time. Everything is a sign. Where's the sign? What They're running to and fro. Much has also been said about if the word there is knowledge, about the increase of knowledge and about that being a sign of the end. Many people point to the printing press, how everybody could have books. You didn't have to be rich to have books. Um the establishment of the internet and how we have all this knowledge right at our fingertips and other things like that. My translation, the New Revised Standard Version, has chosen to say evil shall increase. Okay. Um, some choose to say that that knowledge going out refers to the gospel going out, that people will run to and fro preaching the gospel, and that There's another scripture that says the Bible has to be preached throughout the whole earth before the end of time will come. Um, 
some say that that, that knowledge that will increase is biblical knowledge. Um, that one doesn't make good sense to me, but I put it out there for you. The, using the word evil, choosing that to be the word that is there, evil is often said to increase in the Bible. Before things get better, they get worse. And all this running around and searching might lead you to false knowledge if you're not going to the right places. If you're not trusting God, then you're searching for any answer and somebody may provide you a bad one. People will claim to give you answers, but they're false. And the false knowledge would be evil because it misleads people from the true knowledge and from God. And there, So... I can't explain to you the different manuscripts. Some say knowledge, some say evil. See which one yours says. Verses 5 through 7, the question comes up of how long. The riverbank was first mentioned back in chapter 10. And certainly all of these did not occur at that one visit. Like he's not been at the riverbank this whole time. More than likely. It may be a place that he frequents to see God. He doesn't have a temple He doesn't have a synagogue. So there's somewhere that he goes. We see that that is still common. I mentioned this earlier in the New Testament. Paul and his missionary companions go to a city. They go outside the city beside the river where they assumed there would be a place of prayer. And they meet Lydia, and Lydia becomes a believer, and she starts a church in her home. We also have here that men seem to be angels, Um, There are figures that are standing on each side of the river. And one asks the other. We assume they're asking so that for our benefit, so that we can get the answer, how long these things would be. The narrative emphasizes the solemn nature of the oath that occurs here. He swears by God raising one hand and stretching the other out to heaven. So instead of, like, we would put our hand on the Bible, he stretches his hand out to heaven. He's swearing by God there. And he says again, time, times, and a half, which we've taken to be three and a half years. You see this number elsewhere in here in Daniel in chapter 7, verse 25, chapter 9, verse 27, chapter 12, verse 7, and in Revelation, chapters 11, verses 2 and 3, chapter 12, verse 6 and 14, and chapter 13, verse 5. This has led many to conclude that this is the last half of Daniel's 70th week, um, which many consider to be the great tribulation of the future, and after that, Jesus returns. In verse 8, Daniel struggles to understand, bless his heart. Um, It's comforting to me that even the one to whom this is delivered, even the one who's right there with these angelic beings, who sees it and hears it, who heard firsthand, are uncertain about its meaning. It's why I feel confident saying, I don't understand all this. I'm having to trust. Daniel asks how it will all turn out. Um, He's not just repeating himself. He's asking, assure me there's some good here. Like, why tell me this? If I have to seal it up and not share it with anybody, and if it's all going to happen, what's the point of telling me? What's the outcome for this? He needs to know that there will be an end to the persecution. He needs to know that there's a reason. Um, it's already been promised. He's just anxious and he's confused.
In verses 9 through 13, they tell him, go your way. Stop questioning this and trying to figure it all out. Go on with your life. You've been given some insight into the future. You'll see it happen. Don't get obsessed. Don't get obsessed with eschatology or end times theology. Wickedness is going to go on. Until Jesus returns, there is going to be wickedness and people who embrace it. It is a part of life in our fallen, broken world. But they give him some numbers. Um, In verse 11, it says 1,290 days. That's very specific. Very specific. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 24, 15, that the abomination of desolation means his return is imminent. We're approaching the end of something. Now, 1,290 is about three and a half years by the calendar that we use. 365, 1290 divided by 365 is 3.53424. They, however, are using a 28-day calendar, a lunar calendar um, that has 336 days in it, except for a leap year ever so often. So 12 times 28 is 336. 1290 divided by 336 is 3.83928. So a little longer. So it's a long time. Three and a half years seems like a long time, but it's not forever. In verse 12, he says, blessed are those who persevere, or some of our translations, happy are those. This sounds very much like the Beatitudes in Matthew 5 to me. Now, he gives a different number. He says 1,335 days. There's a 45-day difference in there, and I don't know why. One of the speculations that I saw said that Jesus would return at 1,260 days, that his government would be installed at 1,290 days, and that the nations would be judged at 1,335 days. I don't know why they say he will return at 1,260 days. Um, I'm just passing along a theory. I don't know. In verse 13, he's told again, go your way, rest and trust. Everyone has a way to go. Everyone has an end. There is rest in God, even in the unknown or difficult. There is an inheritance for the people of God that God will deliver just as he's promised. Meanwhile, we remember what Jesus told Peter when he wanted to know more than he needed. We go to John chapter 21, verses 22, and Jesus has told Peter, mm-hmm, you do love me, but yeah, one of these days, right now you go where you want to. One of these days you are going to be led where you don't want to go. You're not going to be in control of yourself. And he asks about one of the others, what, what, about, what about John? And Jesus basically says, it's none of your business. Just follow me. Just stop worrying about him. Worry about your own self. Don't worry about the future. Follow me. The future God has for each of us is a good future. Difficult times in this life. God has not abandoned us. It all works out in the end. Basically, go obey and it'll all work itself out. Those are my thoughts on Daniel. I look forward to hearing yours. Thank you.